excited for today's conversation with Dr. Alice Zhang. I don't know if she has more initials after her name than I don't even know. Um, she's trained as a physician. She has a master's in public health. She has an MBA. She's worked in all of those fields. What's really interesting is she could almost be, she should be on the advertisement for this podcast because she really lives at the intersection. She, in her own career, reflects the complexity of all the things that go into diagnosing, treating, and finding better solutions for women's health. It really helps when somebody can speak multiple languages. And I'm talking medicine, I'm talking business language, public health language. So I think that she really fits the bill for being multilingual in the uh, field of women's health. Absolutely. And there's just talking to her. We always feel like this when we're having these conversations. The, the potential and the possibilities and the opportunity to make things better feel essentially endless. And I think that's the good news and the challenging news. It's good because there's a lot of areas for investment. There's a lot of areas for development. There are a lot of areas to come up with but new ideas, but it also speaks to the complexity. And, and you see that when you're treating a patient and you need to bring in two other specialists. The complexity of the care is just one piece of it. Absolutely. The other thing is she has a lot of real world experience in managing different situations in public health uh, globally. So I think that makes a big difference in her perspective as she thinks about what might be a great investment. So take a listen. Welcome to the business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschirl. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business, or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We are so happy to have today's guest. Alice Zhang, who is an amazing person who wears as many hats as Alyssa does. She's trained as an MD. She has an MBA. She has an MPH. She's a former consultant. Now she's an investor. She's treated patients. She's been a patient. So when we talk about how, how intersecting women's health is, Alice is like the example. Welcome. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And, and yes, I love being with other women's health enthusiasts. We've known each other for years and it's just so wonderful for our work to be continuing colliding like this. So one of the things we always like to ask is, you know, how did your journey get you from one place to another? So how'd you go from medicine to McKinsey or yeah. and medicine to menopause investing? How did you make that transition? Because you have such a diverse background and you could have gone in literally dozens of directions. Sure. Yeah, I mean, some people might look at my resume and say, wow, this person is very undecided or just loves school. You know, keep staying at school. And, and indeed, yes, I was a student for a very long time in my life. Um, I would say a couple of things, you know, one is I've always been driven by a vision and values for how can I make an impact with underserved groups? And 
you can make an impact in many different ways. And that actually that kind of driving underlying idea is what led me to all the different fields that I've been in. And I would also say the other thing is this this curiosity to learn. And I'm always fascinated by how a different part of society works or other stakeholders think about things. And that's also what led me from one path to another. But if I were to walk through, I originally started out in global public health. I was very struck by disparities globally. As I was learning about, even as an undergrad, I was taking some public health classes and learning about issues like HIV AIDS in low-income countries was just very astounding for me. Even though I grew up in a bit of a sheltered suburb of Detroit, I really had this passion for wanting to see this for myself firsthand, make an impact firsthand. So I worked in maternal health and global health very early in my career. And as with many other Asian Americans, pre-med was uh, very much encouraged by my parents. As an immigrant, it's all about stability and finding opportunities that give you that. And my mom had wanted to be a doctor, but she couldn't under certain conditions in China. And so that was something I thought about even before global health. So after my stint in global health, I went into medical school and there was also about impact uh, at the patient level. So it's a little bit different. It's one person at a time, one health condition at a time. But at that time, I, I still do. I did and still believe about health as a human right. Um, and I saw that the path there was as a clinician. With the women's health theme, I wanted to be an OBGYN. I love how OBs are all on a soapbox. You know, they're all advocating for something. They're, you know, they're the ones breaking down barriers out of all the different specialties. So that's where I would have been. And I did do a lot of extra rotations in OBGYN. I started to interview for residency, but by then I had gone to business school because I thought, well, I don't want to just be a clinician. I want to be able to speak the language of business. I want to understand how the private sector operates. Um, what makes companies do what they do? Because I was recognizing increasingly that there's a role that clinical medicine can play. Um, that's, that's very important, but there's also a big role um, in healthcare that the private sector plays as well. So I wanted to learn about that. That led me to business school where I realized that I don't have to be a doctor to have that healthcare impact, that there are others who can do the clinical work that I was aspiring to and probably better than I could do a C-section better than I could and deliver a baby better than I could. But there weren't that many people at this time that were at the intersection of business and public health and medicine. There are people in their own specific field, but there weren't that many at that specific intersection. And that's changed. That was 10, 15 years ago. Now it's more and more common for MDs to think about other career paths. But for me, that's what I realized that was really where I could make the greatest impact with my specific skill set and passions. That's where it would converge. So it was very difficult to decide not to practice medicine because I've been preparing my whole life for that. And, and I love patient care. I, I didn't leave because I didn't like patients or I didn't want to be in the clinic. I really did. And so I deliberated for a very long time and I ended up doing one year of clinical practice after medical school because I do believe it's different being a med student versus an intern, which is what they call first year residents versus a more senior resident versus an attending, you will always learn more at every stage. But the biggest jump, I think, is from a med student to that first year after you graduate. And I wanted to at least have that even if I wasn't going to continue. So I left medicine um, and went to McKinsey, which I really saw as business training. It's a residency for business. <laughs> you get thrown into the deep end. Um, you learn a lot very quickly. You learn about industries, you learn 
how to do different skills like financial modeling, presentations, and there's just, there's a lot of learning in a very short amount of time, which is really, really fun and gratifying for me. I would say themes there um, were around, for me, I worked in the healthcare sector, so with all stakeholders in the healthcare sector on the payer side, provider side, pharma, device, even global health, and just really saw what really matters in those industries, what um, makes things turn, and what drives the businesses fundamentally. And that was really important to understand, again, to broaden beyond the clinical perspective. As a clinician, such a story, such a story. So, so many things to unpack there. First, you really hit a sensitive nerve because everything you're talking about marrying business and medicine is exactly why we started this podcast, mm -hmm. because we find the intersection to be incredible and really poised to meet unmet needs in um, women's health. Um, I have to almost chuckle at something that you said about OBGYNs always being activists with some sort of a cause. And then I'm chuckling only because that's because we're up all night. So we have to like find something to do with every minute of every minute of the day. So uh, you are absolutely correct about that. I noticed that you did some work with a fistula foundation. Um, and, you know, for those who don't know what a fistula is, this is actually a, a very devastating event that can occur for a woman where there is a communication between the vagina and either the bladder or the rectum. Or in other words, things may come out of the vagina that are not necessarily meant to. And this could be stifling for women in different communities. Here in the U.S., of course, this is a potential complication after any sort of surgery or childbirth. And we have the means to fix these things, thank goodness. But we do know that women in other countries are, are really suffering because they're shunned and shamed and kind of ousted. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, and as I mentioned, when I was drawn to global health, it really was about the most underserved, the most stigmatized topics. Actually, that was a theme in general. In college, I was in the vagina monologues multiple times. And when I thought about global health issues, who do I want to work with? And all these women with fistulas um, in various countries, they are often ostracized by their communities. They've suffered terrible maternal health outcomes themselves. Oftentimes in the delivery process, their baby doesn't make it because it's caused by labor that's obstructed for three days at a time. And so very terrible outcomes for mother and child. And there's a lot of misconceptions about why this happened and blame on the woman. And they are often stigmatized, ostracized in society. And that's what really drew me to work with them. One thing I will say, yes, today it is primarily in low-income countries that we see this areas where there's not great maternal health infrastructure, where it's hard to get to interventions very quickly. But in the U.S., this was not uncommon in the 1800s. Uh, and um, there was actually a book that I read recently. This is a slight tangent, but I think relevant to OBGYN as a field. So, you know, the fund that I'm at, Outreach Capital, we have a parent organization called Rio Ventures, and we had a uh, retreat recently, and we read a book called Medical Bondage. And it's all about the history of modern gynecology. And it talks a lot about fistula repair, actually. And uh, of course, that makes sense, you know, that that in that time period in America, that was also pretty prevalent. So one point to make is that, you know, thankfully we've moved past that in the U.S., but there's still a lot of regions in the world where we haven't and there needs to be better maternal health care. And secondly, what I learned through this book, which I think should be required reading for all OBGYNs, is the racist history behind 
modern OBGYN clinical protocols and care and even instrumentation that doctors were doing a lot of experiments on slave women um, in treatment of fistula surgery specifically, as well as other reproductive conditions. That was never talked about when I was a medical student or in any of my multiple rotations. And I don't think my colleagues and friends who are in OBGYN today um, have had much exposure to. Interesting. Yeah. Well, there's always the Henrietta Lacks story as well. So uh, that yep. speaks to that point. But the fistula issue is close to my heart because my first book, we donated our proceeds to the Fistula Foundation because it's such a meaningful uh, organization. Anyway, what did you work on at McKinsey? What was your first, you know, we're thrown to the wolves, you're thrown into the bowels of... Uh, into the boardroom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I started out working with hospital systems, which I think makes sense uh, as a natural extension, having been a physician and coming from the hospital world. And what I found was a lot of the projects were really about um, efficiency, um, cost cutting. Hospitals in America, they run a very tight budget and many of them are nonprofits. They have really, really low operating margins. Um, then I became interested actually in pharma, which I never thought I would be. As a physician, I was very skeptical actually of big pharma. Um, but what I realized is there's a role the hospitals play in care delivery. There's also a role that pharma companies and device companies play in innovation and also scaling products that do work. So I actually pivoted then after a year, year and a half um, into the pharma side and worked with many of the large pharma device players. Um, and I would do some global health here and there as well because it was really important to me to kind of maintain that social impact. And oftentimes actually related to some of my global health projects were very much tied to what I understood and had learned from the pharma sector because in global health, you are also innovating on family planning products, for example, that then need to be marketed, that need to have a supply chain and all the same considerations. Um, you know, it really was applicable. Um, and some of the other projects were around innovating in global health. So maybe a different topic area than what big farmers thinking, but there were definitely a lot of, there's a lot of overlap. And so it was really gratifying to take learnings from one sector and apply it in a different way. Again, being very driven by um, values around impact and how do we best serve the underserved. Here's today's hot flash. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, women make 80% of healthcare decisions in the United States. And this is super important because these decisions can really lead women to have a very significant impact on the health of the entire family. There's so much there. You've also been part of the system. So we have consulting. So you're taking a look from 10,000 feet and providing strategy and direction. And you have a public health degree. You're a doctor. You're now an investor. You've been a patient. What were some of the experiences that you've had in any or multiple roles where you felt that all those pieces really converged for the better or for the worse? That's, that's a, it's a lot of knowledge to carry around, um, and I've seen you in person, you're petite, so that is definitely a lot of knowledge. Um, how does it affect how you experience the health system as a patient? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really great question. I don't know that I think actively about all those hats all the time, but it definitely is there. It's something that I carry with me. So even if I think about looking at investments. So if we're looking at um, a new company 
or a new opportunity with, with the company, um, I'll think about it from different angles. So, you know, first, is there an unmet need here? Are they solving something that has a clinical unmet need and having been a clinician that helps? And not that I, I'm not practicing anymore, so I'm not active, but I still see the language. I can talk to my friends who are in medicine, look at clinical guidelines, be able to read that and just have some memory from my clinical training to kind of do that just initial kind of gut check, like, does this clinical need actually exist? And then as we're learning more about the service or the company, especially in areas I've experienced, such as an infertility, I can reflect on, okay, so would this actually solve something the patient's looking for? And what would the patient experience be like? Um, and then when we think about business models, does this make sense financially? Will this gain traction? Is there a path to reimbursement? Then the consulting skills come in handy and the MBA, because I looked at different business models and kind of seen companies at scale and how do they work and how do they get reimbursement? How do they think about pricing? And so um, that then comes into play there. And of course, there's a whole host of investor specific skills and thinking um, that I've been fortunate to learn more about over the past year of my time with RH Capital that then comes in. And, and, and I'm laying this out kind of stepwise. I don't think I think about that actively, but those different lenses definitely come into play as in my current role, looking at um, a company or investment. So one of the things we hear all the time, what is women's health? How big is it? Um, is it a niche? You know, we laugh about that. Alyssa's office is filled day and night, every day, weekends. There are so many issues. When you look from the perspective of an investor with all those other skills behind it, where do you see just enormous unmet need and opportunity? Sure. And I'll actually say this one I can answer from different perspectives. Also, as a consultant, uh, I worked with various players in the health ecosystem, but women's health was definitely a strong focus area. And I did more women's health than probably anybody else at the firm that, that, that I was at and really um, became the internal go-to person. So I did get to hear about what is this company thinking about it? What is that company thinking about it? And so having that bird's eye view also informs some of the investment pieces that have come to play and, and, and matter. I guess one comment I'll make is that there was a time when women's health was thought of even more as a niche and um, was underinvested, underserved. I think the times are changing. I think that the conversation has um, broadened. Uh, it's becoming more mainstream. It's not just those of us like you and I, who kind of go to the same conferences and same events preaching to each other. But I've seen this as a topic uh, with more and more mainstream investors, mainstream companies, and just different types of events. And so, so I think things are changing. So it's less of a niche, which is great. And your question about where is there the greatest unmet need? You know, women's health is an interesting area where there's just, it's abound with unmet needs. <laughs> right. It's historically so underinvested and underserved that almost everywhere you look. So let's take, for example, female-specific conditions. We know that menopause, for example, is an area where there's large patient numbers. All women and those with female reproductive organs go through it. Um, yet we don't have great clinical understanding. Clinicians are not trained in it. Women themselves do not totally understand what's happening. So there's significant need. Uh, we have conditions like endometriosis where one in 10 women um, have it, but we don't have great diagnostics. We don't have great treatments. We look at maternal health where there is a flurry of 
innovations, a lot on the digital side, maybe consumer patient education. And yet there's still conditions that we treat the same way today as 30 years ago. What do you do at preeclampsia? Deliver the baby. What do you do at preterm birth? You know, there's very few things that you can do. And so if you look at that compared to an area like oncology, where there's kind of new scientific discoveries, new therapeutics, just new things happening a lot, we don't have that in women's health. And so um, there's a lot of unmet need. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm biased. I've been in this space my whole life and investing in it, so I'm always looking for opportunities. But I would say that there's, wherever you look, there's just, it's rampant with conditions that have large numbers and have clinical unmet needs. Uh, and that's just female specific. And if you think beyond that, conditions that affect women disproportionately or differently, there's a lot of need there too. And that's a part of women's health that I would say wasn't even in the conversation three years ago. And now it is. Right. Increasingly, the definition has expanded, which is terrific because women's health isn't just about female body parts, but the health of women. There, there's more to that. And I would say, especially in the past year, I've seen more and more discourse about, let's talk about basic science research and how we're not using female animal models or cell lines and what that means, or excluding reproductive age women um, from clinical trials historically for 20 years. What does that mean? And, and so you know, I think if you broaden the lens, actually, women's health is kind of all of healthcare, and there's need all about. <laughs> right. Well, I'm also thinking of just uh, some of the issues in health that hit both the male and female population, like heart disease, and we cannot necessarily apply all of the uh, learnings that we have about men's heart attacks or men's cardiovascular health and just apply it to women. So I think there's a boundless unmet need in female-specific and non-female-specific uh, issues. I am curious because, again, I'm one of the frontline people and I feel like something is very, very broken in just the delivery of healthcare, not just specific issues um, that affect women's health. What is your thought about, for example, the Kaiser system or the Amazon takeover of One Medical? Do you think that those systems or others that I'm sure you're very familiar with do a better job, and why isn't everybody adopting it, if that's the case? Mm -hmm. that, that's a great question. And if I reflect on what are the issues in care delivery for women, so earlier we talked about the needs from a, I guess, a disease-by-disease disease standpoint, are there therapeutics or diagnostics, but absolutely care delivery is another important factor. And I think the issues are access to care. Are women able to get the care that they need for, in, for certain conditions, whether it's female-specific or not? There's also a lot of biases in care delivery. There's been studies that show about, well, not just studies, but op-eds and just lots of articles about gaslighting of women. Also, if you look at any specific outcome like heart attack, vascular surgery, there's a lot of research showing that women um, have poor outcomes and that sometimes that's related to the underlying disease pathology, such as in cardiovascular, it's a different type of heart attack that's not being recognized quickly and treated properly. But then other times, it's not because it's something biological, but because of maybe biases among providers and how they treat women. We know this is also true in pain management and, and in mental health care. Um, so those are all challenges within the healthcare delivery system that I think women are facing. So then the question of does Kaiser or Amazon take over, what impact does that have? Well, let's see, which one of those can it improve? So in the Kaiser example, um, there's probably better access 
to care. <laughs> I know myself having not, not being in the Kaiser system, having a lot of barriers trying to get to the right specialists and get the right care. I've had a very complicated pregnancy. And I know that in systems like Kaiser is just a little bit more streamlined. So you can imagine that access points and that navigation of the system is better. I haven't experienced it myself to know whether there's maybe less bias or some of the other issues, but at least access. Um, and I would say same, same with Amazon and One Medical um, has, has done a really great job for primary care in general and helping patients get to the doctor faster. And so those types of reducing delays in care in general is, is great. I don't know if One Medical has a specific focus in women's health. Um, so can't comment on that, but if you, yeah, it's not, yeah, it looks like you're saying probably not, perhaps it'll be helpful for women in the primary care piece, but you might still have all the issues around um, the rest of care delivery. And I, I think primary care is one aspect. We also need to think about emergency care and surgeries and in hospital. So um, I think there's kind of a, a longer way to go. Uh, I will say what's promising is in the UK, there's been a new strategy put out by the government around women's health, and that's on the innovation side, but also on care delivery, which is really exciting. And they're thinking very actively about how can we improve healthcare delivery for women. As an investor, I think this is a harder place to innovate on and invest in. We can certainly invest in new players in the system um, that are disrupting care. But in terms of the vast majority, where is care being delivered today in the incumbents? Um, that's, it's harder to change that through venture capital innovation. Yeah. We can have great solutions, but they're going to be not at scale for a very long time. And yeah. that's one of the things that makes this so complicated is there are so many pieces and this isn't, um, this isn't just relevant to women's health, but even some of the areas that we've discussed, when you talk about if a woman has a concern or a condition or a disease, it affects multiple systems in her body. There are multiple specialists who would need to be involved. Then you have to have access to care. Then it has to be affordable. It is, it just, sometimes when you lay it all out there, it's so complex that it feels almost immovable. And that's why I think from my perspective that lots of entrepreneurs are focused on one piece. Let me just fix this one piece because I can't fix the whole system. Let me just fix how women are treated and spoken to uh, during menopause. Let me just change how, how fistulas are handled from a societal or cultural or mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have a particular favored, I wouldn't say favored, but most exciting investment? There's all kinds of talk about male contraception. There's talk about telehealth and apps that increase access. Uh, talk about devices that might be helpful for women's health. Do you have a favored um a favored category? Yeah, that, that's hard. I'm excited about anything women's health. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to pick favorites, but I, I'll give some examples. Maybe first, um, just to introduce our fund. So I'm, I'm investor with Arch Capital, which is a women's health focused fund. Um, we focus exclusively on conditions that affect women only. And we spend a lot of time in contraception and in maternal health. We're probably the single largest investor in contraception, not, not by dollars necessarily, but by number of companies. Uh, we have multiple in the portfolio um, and also spend time in other female-specific areas. And those are the topics, but the uh, I would say the scope is very broad in terms of the life science companies versus digital versus consumer, et cetera. Um, so with that backdrop, it's been really exciting to 
invest with RH Capital. In addition to those focus areas, we also uh, think a lot about impact. And so, you know, if it's it's either a high, highly transformative technology or reducing um, access barriers, reducing health inequities or improving affordability. Um, so I'll give some examples of favorites. Again, all of our companies are our favorites. Do we invest in them for a reason? <laughs> um, so give some examples, maybe different parts of the impact uh, type types of impact. One company that we invested in is called um, AOA, and it is a company in ovarian cancer diagnostics that enables earlier detection. So yeah, she was on our, the founder was on our program. Wonderful. So, you know, re- refer to that episode to learn more. No, but I would love you to talk about it. What was so <laughs> impactful and how it got your attention with you must get the deal flow in this space now is a little bit crazy. Yep. Yeah. And so for us, this company really spikes on the pillar of transformative technology. So ovarian cancer is a space where it's very hard to diagnose. Um, the symptoms are nonspecific. They often um, are dormant for a long time. Because they're so nonspecific, patients end up getting shuttled around to different tests, maybe different specialists before they, they realize what they have. And that delay can make a big difference in your outcomes. So this company has a test that is specific to ovarian cancer. It's actually shed into the blood. So you can actually do a non-invasive blood test because ovarian cancer, there's no way to diagnose it. There are some blood tests today, but they really don't tell you a whole lot. Um, and it's not something you can biopsy either. You can, it's actually dangerous to try to biopsy a, a lesion if you think it's ovarian cancer. Um, so for us, AOA really hits on the impact pillar around something very transformative in an area that has just really big unmet clinical need of ovarian cancer. So another example, as I mentioned, we look at companies that um, focus on underserved groups. So we have a company, well, I'll just say two, we have two companies in maternal health that are really looking to address health inequities. Um, So it's not about a new technology per se, you know, or a new scientific discovery. It's really about operating within the system that we have today and providing services that are are specifically targeted to these groups. So both of them are, are targeting black and brown mothers who are in the maternity journey. Um, May has a intrapartum doula and a digital solution. Kayaba Care um, has a wraparound service where they have maternity navigators that work with patients in between doctor visits. They also do wraparound care like social work and transportation and just other things you might need outside of clinical medicine because today's model of 12 OB visits that may or may not happen, um, where doctors don't have that much time for you. It's, it leaves a lot of other needs that, that are unmet. And especially in America, we know that black and brown women have disproportionately poor outcomes. Um, today's model doesn't work. And so both of these companies are looking to address those health inequities. And so that's, that's really exciting. Wow, we could talk literally for days. We could go down any one of these many, many paths, but so appreciate you breaking down some really complex ideas. Um, also a very complex set of skills that you have. And one of the things that strikes me is just how much opportunity there is. When we were pushing you on favorite company or favorite area, obviously there are more investments in certain areas. And we talk about, you know, perhaps within women's health, we spend more money on, you know, um, bikini health. So breast health, vaginal health. Um, but you are helping to make that conversation bigger and bring some more of these companies to light. So um, hoping to see you soon. I'm sure I will at an event um, because we always talk about how 
wonderful this collaborative community is of people in this space. And thanks for your time. Hey, thank you so much for having me and for continuously empowering others in this space. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business.